Hello, and welcome once again to Pop Enlightenments in association with the Centre for Enlightenment Studies at King's College London and with the British Society for 18th Century Studies. For those of you who like your pop culture served up with a pinch of 18th century historical context, this is, as ever, the podcast for you. I'm Dr Emrys Jones, Senior Lecturer in 18th Century Literature and Culture at King's College London and Editor of the British Society for 18th Century Studies review site Critics. For this episode and the next, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest Dr Brianna Robertson-Kirkland, who is Lecturer in Historical Musicology at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and Research Associate at the University of Glasgow. Brianna is also our music editor for the Critics website, and in these two episodes she's going to be chatting with me about a couple of different facets of how music is used in pop cultural representations of the 18th century. Very glad to have you on the podcast, Brianna. Welcome. Thank you very much. Hi. So, Brianna, I thought that for this episode we could talk generally about the kinds of music that are used in TV shows and films set in the 18th century. And I guess particularly the difference between those productions that show period appropriate music being performed in universe, so what we would call diegetic sound, and those scenes soundtracked, whether appropriately or not, in such a way that only the audience can hear it, i.e. the non-diegetic. Which productions have particularly impressed you as a musicologist with their portrayal of 18th century music making? Well, one is the 2003 film Master and Commander, because in that film it was really surprising that they included music you know, it, it doesn't really need to be included as part of the storyline. There's certainly nothing that mm -hmm. adds to it, except that it's showing this friendship that's developing between the captain and the doctor. So, yeah, we're on board ship, aren't we? We are. It's not kind of the stereotypical idea, at least, of where music making is happening in the 18th century. No. So typically what we might see in films where music is included is it might be a grand palace or a grand house or a mansion house and you're seeing music playing out in a domestic style of setting. Whereas what's unique about Master and Commander is that they're on board a ship mm. and music is happening as part of ship life, which is fairly accurate for what we presume to have been happening during this period. Mm. And it's also a, an all-male environment, isn't it? Which we, we don't necessarily assume that, that that is an environment where music is going to be so central, and yet it, it clearly was at the time. Exactly. So again, very often what we see is women performing music in films. And that's because typically we have films such as uh, portrayals of Jane Austen and uh, films such as that that do focus on that domestic setting mm. where women are primarily the music makers. Whereas in Master and Commander, there are no women, they're not on board ship. And we get that sense of music being equally important to men, which it absolutely was. There was plenty of male amateur uh, music performers who were playing musical instruments such as the flute and the violin, and these would have been absolutely appropriate. And it's certainly not seen as damaging their masculinity in the 18th century in, in any sense, is no. it? And uh, that kind of communal music making is, is, if anything, supportive of military morale, I guess, as you see it there. Yes. Um, we were chatting before we started recording about the, the more recent film, The Favourite, which we've talked about in some other episodes of the podcast, and how it both has moments of quite successful portrayal of the way that music might have been performed and listened to in, in the 18th century, and also some more frustrating aspects potentially of, of leaning back into cliches of what, what music was like at that point. Yes, yeah, so in The Favourite you get this wonderful dance scene which yes the dance itself is contemporary or very modern i should say so we don't get confused um 
it's very uh, modern portrayal of dance. But the shock factor is that it's getting the audience to engage with the fact that what they are doing is quite controversial. Mm. So that's what makes that scene so successful, is that it's combining the attitude or the 18th century attitude and making it relatable to a modern audience. Mm. Where it's a little bit less successful in The Favourite is when they have these moments of music making, which is just typical to how we might understand that music making happens. So there's a concert scene where there is a singer who's standing to attention and performing in front of an audience who's laid out in a very 19th century concert hall setting. And everyone's respectfully listening. They're respectfully actually. listening. They're not, they're paying attention to the singer. There's no chatting and everybody's sitting quite politely. Mm. This is not what would have happened in the 18th century. There are so many reviews and comments of people going to the opera, of people sitting in their homes and they're literally talking over the musicians, sometimes being a little bit more rude than that <laughs> um, with regards to the musicians. And they're certainly not sitting and respectfully watching mm. that type of 19th century style. And I, I don't think they would have been sitting even as formally as what's presented in The Favourite. It's interesting because actually when you first mentioned The Favourite to me, the scene that, that stood out to me as most memorable in a way does capture some of the the aggravation that could be caused by music at the time. It's a scene where Queen Anne is kind of, she's frustrated because of other things and she sees this string quartet out of her window and shouts down at them to, to shut up basically and, and go away, which is, is maybe one of those moments in the film that captures a bit, a bit better what that lived experience might have been. I mean, I guess it's a sense that when we're looking at, at music as it's being portrayed in these movies that we're not just interested in whether the sound is authentic, whether the instruments are authentic, but also in, in how these films can convey music as a part of the lived experience of these people, as a, a physical um, and kind of social challenge for people to interact with, in a, in a sense, that it is part of the social hierarchies of its day as much as anything. And yeah, I guess The Favourite has moments where, where that is captured quite succinctly and nicely in other parts, as you say, that it's less interested in it. Uh, does that strike you as, as an important facet then of, of how music is being used and portrayed in these mo movies? The, the kind of the social, the um, kind of the physical, the everyday aspect of music making? Yeah, so definitely what seems to happen in movies that are making a conscious effort to include music as part of the diegetic experience is that there'll always be that moment where they pause, a musical event is happening, it's been carefully researched, they're trying to put it together as historically informed as they think, and then we'll move to another scene and it's mm. kind of how we might typically expect music to take place in a modern period. And we kind of have this strange understanding of classical music as being something that's always existed in the way that we currently experience it. Mm. And that's not necessarily the case. And the favourite is exactly an example of that, mm. of where they've used really intelligent moments to capture that social lived experience. And then at the same time, they're moving on to other moments where it's just, let's have some music here. And, and this is how they probably would have experienced it. And they're not looking at any, at any more into it than that. Sure. Let's think a little bit about kind of those depictions of 18th century music that do diverge a bit from our typical understanding of, of classical music of the time. I know that you're quite interested in the TV show Outlander, another one that we've covered on this podcast in the past, and the ways that it presents 
what I've been told I should not call folk music or traditional music, but simply kind of song culture of, of the time. Is that effective? Is, is that authentic as, as far as you understand the way that music was a part of kind of ordinary people's lives? Not, we're not just talking about palaces and kings and queens here, but all different strata of society essentially experiencing music. So what Outlander does quite successfully is that it's making a conscious effort to represent lots of different types of music making in Scotland in the 18th century. So we have a specific scene that's devoted to Claire being part of a group that are singing walking songs. Mm. Walking, uh, a walking song or, or walking the tweed, which is what it would have been known as, or walking mm -hmm. the wool, is where a group of ladies, usually about 8 to 15 ladies, um, would sit together at a table and they would take the wool and they would literally walk it like that in that kind of rhythm. Mm -hmm. And they're walking it, when what the, makes the scene amusing, they're walking it using urine and it's basically um, to tease out the wool and I think it's also to lock in colour in the wool as mm. well. And they would use songs so that they're all in sync as they're doing this motion and this is what we see in Outlander. And they've made a conscious effort to actually include that part of Scottish culture that is so well known in Scotland and taught throughout Scotland. Um, and they're trying to do it in a way where it doesn't interrupt the storyline too much, which is why we get quite a lot of amusing back and forth. Mm -hmm. It was clear getting drunk and all that kind of stuff. We also have then moments where we've got music in the pub, which is, um, there's a song by, uh, sung by Gilbert Jim McMillan, who's a Gaelic singer. But we have this moment where it kind of pans in on Gilabrija singing this song and he's beautifully done up as an 18th century man um, and it kind of steals away from the moment, mm -hmm. from the actual movement of the episode uh, rather than including it as part of the episode as they did so well with Claire in the walking song um, moment. And by extension, I guess, then it doesn't quite feel like part of ordinary life, does it? If you're just stopping everything, stopping the narrative in order to to watch what is certainly a, a, an amazing performance, but it's, there's an inauthenticity to kind of stopping things in order to uh, attend to that, I suppose. Exactly. Um, we mentioned Matt Master and Commander before, and I guess that's quite a good example, quite a good bridge for our discussion. An example of a film where we move seamlessly at various points between the diegetic sound and the, the non-diegetic uses of music. So on a number of occasions, we see the characters beginning to play a piece in their cabin, which then becomes the soundtrack to a montage that roams much more widely across the ship and its crew. And I guess that raises the question of whether there's anything inherently misleading about this, this very cinematic concept of non-diegetic sound, of a soundtrack which is no longer tied to a specific act of performance, but that follows the dictates of the cinematic narrative. Do those moments necessarily detract, do you think, from an appreciation of what music meant to people in the 18th century itself? Right. Well, I guess that there is a, a falseness that could come from that type of moment where you're, you're seeing the music being uh, played in that intimacy of a room between two or three people or a small group of people, which is how music would have been experienced by people in the 18th century. And then it sort of moves through. So when Master and Commander moves through the ship as if everybody is experiencing that music. Mm. And that's, of course, not necessarily the case. Mm. It's not like there's a CD playing and everybody can hear it over speakers in sure. the ship. 
that be very useful. It'd be yeah. useful. <laughs> I'm sure it happens now, but yeah. it's simply it's not something that's happening in the 18th century. Uh, if you wanted to experience music, you either could play music yourself or you sat in and listened to somebody else playing it and you're not necessarily going to listen to something that you want to listen to. I guess it's that sense that's so hard to capture in, in a film, really, is the sense of individual points of access to, to music, I guess, and uh, the also the stationary aspect of music in a way, of needing to stop and, and listen to something if you want to pay attention to it, rather than this idea that we are so ingrained with, I guess, of having our headphones in and being able to carry our soundtrack with us. Well, what I like to think of experiencing music in the 18th century, and it's not going to be on as grand a scale, but if you imagine walking through a shopping centre today, there's music playing over the speakers. You don't have any music in a podcast or a phone that you can listen to yourself. So you're overwhelmed with this music just coming at you that you may or may not like. And mm. so you're going to block that out. And a lot of people do. They'll just block this out. They'll talk to their friends or talk to whoever they're with and ignore what's going on around them. That's probably what's happening in the 18th century. If they're not enjoying the music, if it's not what they want to listen to, you're going to turn around, you're going to start chatting, discussing with whoever's there. It's just an imposition on your life. If it's something that you do enjoy, then you're more likely to pay attention. But the problem in the 18th century is that the way that you do that isn't by replacing it with other music, because you can't necessarily mm. do that. It'd be by going out of the room, removing yourself from the situation and going into silence effectively or going somewhere where you can play your own music. But you have to have a certain level of skill to be able to do that. I mean, that seems like a whole set of quite instinctive skills and capacities that 18th century people must have had that we, we're not particularly well equipped to understand. And I guess cinema or, or TV are not especially equipped to, to demonstrate themselves. In terms of diegetic music and this idea of, of a soundtrack imposed from without upon a scene in, in 18th century set productions, uh, I know that you've been particularly interested in, in the TV show Versailles, the, the French-Canadian co-production, which uh, ran for three seasons from, from 2015 to 2018. And a particular scene that you might tell us more about there where we begin with the diegetic um, within kind of the, the scene itself, the music is being performed, and then we, we segue from that into a soundtrack imposed on it and a much more modern soundtrack I gather as well. Yeah, uh, so this scene I particularly find effective because it's doing what I would describe as invoking a historically informed performance but making it relatable to the audience. So historically informed performance is essentially informing a performance with historical knowledge. So mm. some people might describe this as historically authentic, which isn't quite correct because we're not trying to recapture necessarily exactly what happened in the period, so we're trying to get as close to it as possible. So in this scene, what we have is the Sun King. He walks through his audience, which is all of his courtiers. This, this is Louis XIV. This is Louis XIV. He's dressed in um, it's a gold and beige colouring, so he's looking very extravagant and he has his gold mask on. He walks through the audience and up to his stage, which he's slightly elevated, and the audience are all watching and waiting to see what happens. And we have this beautiful 18th century soundtrack that is accompanying, which is being played by musicians that we see 
as the camera pans around, you can see them playing. And on, on relatively historically accurate instruments yes. as well. So they're on historically accurate instruments. They themselves are portrayed as uh, historically accurate. So they're wearing wigs, they're wearing appropriate costuming, and they are real life musicians. So they are playing mm. the, the instruments appropriately. Just as Louis XIV begins, to, begins his dance, we get a few bars of the music that's appropriate for the time and then it shifts into this electronica style music as mm. you see the the audience looking on for Louis the 14th with this shock that the king himself that the is king himself performing for them yes. is performing these ballet steps which he was known as the uh, uh, the father of the modern ballet mm-hmm. so what's happening in that scene is that we're getting that sense of the historical accuracy as he's walking through and he's standing up on the stage and he's doing the what i understand to be the appropriate steps and then it merges into this modern soundtrack to give the modern audience that sense of shock mm. that the audience within the 18th century looking on this scene yes. would have felt. And a shock which couldn't really be replicated by using just the same music ongoing. So it needs to adjust, doesn't it? Cinema yeah. and TV needs to adjust to the sensibilities and the expectations of, of the modern audience. I mean, we've talked quite a bit in, in the various episodes of this podcast about how accuracy and historical authenticity are not everything and that seems a wonderful example of where actually a bit of anachronism can can help to make the point can can assist in in the exact mood that the directors want to create in that particular moment um just sticking with this idea then of the non-diegetic soundtrack are there particular 18th century composers or or instruments that we we tend to hear a lot of and, and conversely composers and instruments that really we should be hearing more of when uh, a soundtrack is is created for an 18th century set movie if we actually were were thinking about what these characters themselves would be listening to at the time. So certainly when we're watching movies that are set in the 18th century we tend to hear a lot of J.S. Bach. Mm. He's a very popular composer to include and why not? I mean, he was born in the 18th century, wrote a lot of music, why not include him? Well, there's a very good reason why we shouldn't (laughs) include him. He wasn't actually known or popular until the 19th century Mm. when Mendelssohn popularised him by uh, performing uh, St John's Passion. And that was the first time when Bach became really that well-known composer across the Western world. I I just find that so fascinating when we, I mean, because his music is one of the main things we associate with what the sound of the 18th century was and yet when you start thinking about what's actually being performed in that moment uh i mean which which composers would have been heard at the time who are not maybe represented as much as they should be in pop cultural representations of of the 18th century uh, so if we're looking uh, to here to britain and certainly in london theater culture was the the biggest popular form of music making that was happening. So we would have had composers, and certainly we would have had Thomas Arne, who was Mm. extremely popular in the earlier part of the 18th century. Later on, most of those uh, shows that would have been performed in Drury Lane or in Covent Garden. So you've got composers um, such as uh, uh, Charles Dibden, incredibly popular. Lots of his music can be found in collections uh, up and down uh, Britain. Uh, There is composers such as Stephen Storrs, not so well known now, Mm. but he didn't write a lot. He passed away when he was relatively young, 
but we find a lot of his songs appear in collections in, in the British Library and all up and down the country. So we have to look at these um, collections of music that now uh, still exist to get a real sense of the type of composers that are being popularly collected, mm -hmm. popularly performed and popularly known to really mm -hmm. get a real sense of what was popular during the day. Unfortunately, Bach does not feature there. And I mean, even someone like Handel, who clearly was very popular, is perhaps overrepresented then when it comes to, to movies. I'm thinking again of the favourites, actually, yes. which has a lot of Handel in spite of the fact uh, kind of the events portrayed predate his arrival in Britain, predate really his most famous and, and successful years, I guess. Exactly. Handel, uh, he is sort of the exception that proves the rule. So he did uh, maintain his popularity post his death. And he was very popular in Britain with whole a choral festival dedicated to him throughout mm -hmm. the 18th and the 19th century. But we have to think of him more like um, Prince or David Bowie. <laughs> You're not necessarily hearing him every single day as you walk down the street. He's not, he's a very popular musician, he's a very popular composer, but you're not hearing him absolutely everywhere. You're going to hear the popular music of the moment mm -hmm. being played more regularly. Well, Brianna, this has been a great start in our considerations of the musical 18th century on screen. Thank you. In our next follow-up episode, we're going to be discussing a much more specific aspect of musical culture, the lives of the castrati. But for now, many thanks again for joining me, Brianna, and thank you all for listening.